Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. It's hard for financial professionals to go anywhere these days or read much online without encountering the terms green, climate, or ESG. This aspect of investing isn't new, but it feels like we've been drinking from the sustainable fire hose over the past two or three years. By the numbers, some of this step up in awareness is evidenced by increased green bond sales. On a global level, last year was a high water mark with well over 400 billion of issuance. And on the domestic front, almost 40 billion of that was sold for the benefit of US companies. How all this pertains to the $3.8 trillion market in municipals is still unfolding. But if a six times growth rate in green bond munis since 2018 is any indicator, investors and issuers need to become quasi-experts and fast. Today, we are joined by three experts in the sustainable investing space, each offering a unique and varying perspective on the evolving marketplace for green municipal bonds. Providing us with a money manager's perspective, we're joined by Ksenia Coban from Payton and Regal. Giving us insight into data around climate change, we are joined by Chris Harshorn from ICE, and Monica Reed from Kestrel Verifiers can give us the perspective from a third-party verifier of green and social bonds. I'm Eric Kazatsky, and welcome to the January 2022 episode of Masters of the Universe. Today, I'm also joined by Amanda Albright, who many of you may know from Bloomberg News Municipal Coverage. Welcome, everyone. So to get things started off, I'll be honest. I, I think I'm still sort of on the fence whether I am an ESG skeptic or not. And it's interesting, you know, having a public finance background, you know, and been doing this for 23, 24 years. And I grew up in a business where we always thought every municipal bond had a sustainable aspect to them. And, you know, Amanda and I debate this all the time. And, you know, she has the numbers to substantiate the growth in the field. But, you know, I think that's why we're having the conversation today to, you know, convert myself and, you know, bring a lot of investors who are on the fence as well into the fold. Um, so like Amanda, like, why don't you sort of jump in here and, and let's sort of get the questions started. Yeah, so I guess I'm wondering if, if Monica could kind of kick things off and um, what she would do to make Eric an ESG convert. You know, what are the kind of key points about this space um, that are important to know and um, just kind of speak to kind of the high level view of why Muni ESG is a real um, like force to be reckoned with. Sure. So Eric, I agree that all Muni bonds should have a public benefit. That's true. But there's a difference between public benefit and environmental benefit or social benefit or even transition alignment. So when we put the green bonds, like shine the light on the green bonds, what we're, and I'll use green as a proxy for green social sustainability, which is green plus social equals sustainability, or climate bonds, which are just another form of green bonds. When we shine a light on these green bonds, what we're doing is calling out the number one alignment with these international standards, but number two, pointing to the environmental or social benefit of it and attesting to that, verifying that, uh, we in Kestrel, we coach issuers uh, on reporting and increasing their transparency so that investors who are looking for these, 
you know, tools to implement their ESG strategies ha can have some confidence in what they're buying. So you mentioned climate, right? And obviously that's just like one sort of aspect that goes into this. And, you know, with that, I want to sort of just pivot over to Chris real quick. Chris, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's ever been a muni default due to a natural disaster, right? Um, that is uh, conventional wisdom. Um, in actual fact, the uh, the first default due to a climate event dates back to I think 1900 or 1901 when uh, Galveston failed to deliver on its debt after a uh, uh, after a, a hurricane-driven flood. So I can actually find you more than a century of uh, of credit of credit risk and credit impairment um, uh, from climate events. I think it's maybe a little known, um, little known history. Um, in, in recent times, um, even last year, I think, maybe, yeah, it was last year, um, um, state of Louisiana um, essentially had to provide a, what amounts to a, a level of bailout for a debt that was about to default from the serial hurricanes that, uh, that passed through uh, the coastal areas of, uh, of Louisiana as well. And in the intermittent period of the 120 years that I just covered, um, there are certainly other events that, uh, that that occurred as well. I think it certainly hasn't been as prevalent as you know maybe the the more um, sort of obvious and contemporary um, credit issues that uh, that the you know, folks in the fixed income space um, talk about. But the one thing that we always um, sort of point to is um, the past should not be viewed as indicative of what the future will be like. And there are a whole bunch of assumptions built upon past performance that are going to be fallacies when people start to consider them in future performance. So the history is there, um, but the history is not going to be anywhere near as severe as what we're walking towards from a climate risk perspective. It's interesting. You're sort of coming at that from a money manager's perspective and sort of caveating future performance. I appreciate that. And that's a good segue uh, over to Ksenia. Um, Obviously, you're, you're one of the portfolio managers uh, for the California Muni Social Impact Fund. You know, you know, I just sort of got familiar with this myself over the last few weeks. But can you give us a snapshot on on the goals of that fund? Um, and I want to hear about you know how you and your firm have seen sustainable investment landscape change over the past few years. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Eric. So the. Um, the objective of the fund is still to deliver performance, which is, uh, I think, interesting to talk about through the lens of sustainability, as well as deliver environmentally and socially um, oriented benefits, right? And so, and, and I think I'll pick up on a point you made earlier about, you know, how do munis work in this new world of sustainability and where we're talking about green and social and sustainable bonds and why does a vehicle like the California Social Impact Fund help us get there. Well, you know, we, we really, I don't think we would have really had um, an impact fund or any measurable way of, um, you know, contributing to an investment thesis had we not had consensus frameworks come out um, where sort of, you know, the key players in the fixed income universe and equity and generally capital markets decided what categories of expenditure would have positive environmental benefits and which categories of expenditure would have positive social benefits and you know how do we combine the two so until we had consensus frameworks as to what impact means 
um, I think it would have been really hard to build a vehicle or a portfolio around it because just because you have, you know, as Monica mentioned, you know, all munis should have a public benefit, but do they contribute to, a, you know, to broader global goals on sustainability? And I think that's what we've been able to do with the fund, um, given that we lean on the ICMA principles and we lean on ICMA green and social and sustainability bond principles. Uh, as well as, you know, and we align and we actually think a lot about what does it take from a governance point of view to achieve these objectives um, across various sectors and the variety of issuers that we have in the municipal market. And we have a quantifiable way to measure progress, right? And that contributes to a trajectory of improving factors and improving scores, if you will, across um, some of the some of these key pillars that we work with. So, you know, I would pick up you know, just the point that I would make would be on, um, I think the key with munis is that munis are now part of um, the universe of, asset, uh, of assets we can invest in to think about how do we transition to a different place, not what are we measuring today and what do we know about the public benefit or social environmental benefit of the investments we make today. But the better question is, is how do we think about the transition? Right, and how do munis contribute, uh, and they contribute very importantly across a number of sectors to the transition to specific set of climate goals, social goals, or a combination of the two. Um, just kind of talking through some of the um, the growth that we've seen in this space over the years. I mean, I think last year was a record for green bond sales with almost um, 22 billion of, of sales sold. Um, you know, we're seeing more, um, in addition to just like chatter about ESG, we're seeing more products launched that are aimed towards ESG. Um, even Bloomberg has launched its own municipal impact index. Um, we've seen, you know, an ETF launch that's all about sustainable investing. Um, I'm just curious if, if y'all can talk a little bit about um, you know, whether this growth is sustainable and, you know, what the next phase of growth looks like for this part of the market. Really, I mean, the mini market's kind of slow to change, right? <laughs> Folks do things the way they've done things forever. And there are a lot of, we're still having a lot of very early conversations with issuers and finance teams. What is a green bond? How do we do it? Let alone what activities across our universe of activities that we're financing, what would be eligible? That's a little, you know, it's a little further uh, in the progression of the conversation. So I would say there's there's lots of room for growth because there's lots of folks that still haven't even really come to the table. Chris, we yeah, I'd bolt on. Yeah, I'd, I'd bolt on to that a little bit. I think there's um, there's multiple angles to this. There is the, the categorical um, approach where it's, this is a certified green bond, this is a certified sustainable bond, this is a certified climate bond, um, and they become products in their own right. But where a lot of the growth is coming from now, whether it be ETFs or indices they're going to build out or uh, the, the portfolios that have been managed, are not to treat um, ESG as a binary with respect to municipal bonds, but instead to treat ESG as a grayscale um, with a number of different factors that can be looked at. So um, muni bonds theoretically are always for public good, but every muni bond is a snowflake, right? And that snowflake has characteristics where I can find you um, the full range of social impact, the full range of climate risk, the full range of carbon transition risk across the muni bond universe. And so these products and the growth and the interest is going to be driven not by 
necessarily just the pure binary categorical certifications. It will also be driven by the ability to evaluate one bond against another um, without there being a certification and without there being necessarily being a labour life, but it being comparing one school district to another or a charter school to another or a hospital to another and thinking about the populations being served um, and the, the ESG profile of the individual issuer and the obligors sitting underneath that issuer. So I think it's going to become more nuanced and that's actually where the growth in this area is going to come from and where the nuance of the investor will be driven to is evaluating the full universe as opposed to um, sort of specialty products that might pop out from a few certifications. Yeah, and I think maybe I'll just um, contribute to the point about growth from a perspective of the stakeholders, right? So an average issuer, like a big city or a state has countless stakeholders that are all pushing, that are all becoming more educated, more informed, and uh, more committed to the idea of sustainability, right? Not to mention investors and our clients and the asset owners that invest in the asset class. It's probably, um, you know, it, it, if you think about what the stakeholders want out of climate transition and out of achieving social objectives and so on, municipal bonds and public enterprises are really linchpin in this whole effort. And I think the the pressure from the stakeholders is not going to abate. I think it's going to multiply. And when you have a market like the municipal market, which is really dynamic, really diverse, um, you know, where you really can think creatively about structures as we've seen in, I think, recent years, the, the obvious, you know, it, it, it's obvious to me that um, there's really only opportunity for growth. Now, how growth develops and whether, as Chris mentioned, we're talking about certified structures or more consistent way of looking at all muni bonds without, you know, specific certifications in place. And, you know, as we're learning how to measure physical risk and transition risks, independent of certifications, you know, maybe that's how growth develops. So, you know, we'll have to see how robust some of these common frameworks are uh, in the marketplace. But I have no doubt that um, the market is definitely poised for growth uh, with ESG lens, uh, through the ESG lens. So, I mean, coming at this from, from my seat, right? And I'm a strategist and, you know, part of my job or large part of my job is trying to find relative value in the marketplace. And it's been quite difficult to say the least over the last two years. But, you know, thinking through this, right? And sort of, it seems like the broad point from the three of you is that this is gonna be a growing area, right? And to me, that means there's gonna be more issuance, but that also means that there's gonna be more mandates all chasing a similar pot, right? So everyone's at the same car lot looking for the same 82 Chevy. And to me, I feel like the inevitable ending of this is gonna be that things richen. I mean, you know, Ksenia, do you have sort of a differing opinion there that, you know, the, the end result is not gonna be sort of like green bonds actually richening to the regular general market paper? It's hard to see how things can richen further. Well, yeah. uh, and we say that every time we talk about muni valuations, but um, I suppose it could. But I think the greenium, uh, we, you know, we really kind of have to uh, part ways with that concept because um, for a number of reasons, right? Because A, in, you know, issuers, the, the technicals really already control valuation and to, to a large extent in our market. And we really haven't seen um, 
really compelling green programs where you have a lot of disclosure and uh, really good objectives and solid metrics and you know really good governance practices. We haven't really seen them price through their non-green uh, counterparts. So I don't think that's going to improve with time. I think what will happen is that you know issuers will come to terms with the fact that you know these were suggestions and these were this was a way to differentiate yourself in the marketplace early on. Uh, it soon will become, you know, an expectation, if not a mandate, uh, as, you know, as regulators are already beginning to look at this, not only and the muni regulators specifically. Um, so I, I don't think it's, you know, really going to be looking at ways to differentiate value as a result of ESG, green or social credentials. What we are going to be looking for is ways in which these government, the things that underpin the compelling green program or social program, the extent to which they um, in turn improve governance and in turn improve credit quality over time and uh, improve to be a contributor to credit stability and a name that you want to stay invested in over the long term. And Ksenia, you mentioned something that um, I wanted to make sure we talked about. The MSRB has really been um, kind of following the SEC's lead in touting ESG as an area that it's looking at. And so um, I know that they have you know, requested that market participants weigh in um, with feedback on disclosure. Um, so I'm curious, um, and maybe we'll just start with um, Monica, like what is ESG disclosure, disclosure like? How can it be improved upon? And if the MSRB is looking at this, is that a good thing for this part of the industry or is that um, a detriment? Yeah, you know, it's a little, um, it's interesting to see how things get twisted up, right? So Eric, you were asking about green bonds and now we're talking about ESG and they're, they're sort of like two different things and I'm really interested in both. So I just want to make that distinction. Yeah. Green bonds, you're right, Chris, it's a binary. Yes, no, you're green, you're not green. Exactly. And and there's there's extra transparency and metrics and uh, you know uh, a qualification of the impact associated. And I agree, we should be thinking about all muni bonds in a larger spectrum of ESG characteristics, not are all muni bonds green. So there's there's sort of two different things, and we've kind of got this um, slightly inefficient market right now because we, we you know there's there's not a lot of. Uh, clarity about how all the pieces fit together for some for some uh, people. So um, how you asked about disclosure. So disclosure is to me is sort of sector specific and issuer specific. And the things that are important to me in terms of disclosure as an external reviewer, and I'm sort of down in the weeds with the issuer, my, my team and I, we're down in, the team, down in the weeds with the issuer, we're working with the finance team and the intermediaries, and then we're also having conversation with, conversations with investors about what they're looking for. And we're trying to connect everyone, so every turn things so that everyone can see what everyone's got. So in terms of disclosure, what's important to us is what is the planning that's behind this? Is the active bond finance activity aligned with, say, a climate action plan or a larger sustainability um, strategy? Um, what are the goals of the bond finance activities and how will you know um, that you've met those? Um, we like to, when we're doing our second party opinions on uh, uh, green and social bonds, we like to have like real transparency about the impact 
the expected impact um, of the bond financed activity. Uh, we always coach in issuers to disclose climate risk, to talk about climate risk. And, and climate risk sort of has two faces, right? There's the physical climate risk. What's the risk that my wastewater treatment plant's gonna get taken out by that hurricane or that so many people are gonna move away, it's gonna affect the ability to repay. But then there's also the, the other way of looking at transition risk, which is, is this municipal, is this bond finance activity driving us toward the transition to a decarbonized economy or is it status quo or is it taking us in the other direction? And when people talk about disclosure, I, I kind of think they're looking for more of that kind of information. There's a lot in Muniland that is regulated. We're working, you know, every Muni, not every, but most Muni issuers um, are working in a very regulated, permitted space and government has a lot of accountability and transparency in its own processes. So in a certain sense, muni bonds, you're, you're, you're kind of assured, you have more assurance of the impact. Um, but how the municipal bond finance activities align with the just transition to the decarbonized economy, that's where we need more disclosure. Uh, and can I actually pick up on that point? Is it a, yeah. it's a point that I've been um, wanting to make a little bit more uh, forcefully in the market is that, you know, the transition risk stuff is really important to think about because, you know, while impact alignment and as Monica said, you know, we walk through the steps of the ICMA framework and we can, you know, really aligns with a lot of what munis do and disclose at the moment, what we're missing um, is a broad adoption and implementation of uh, state and local government GHG inventory and reduction protocols, similar to what we have in the corporate market. So we have in the corporate market, we have the GHG greenhouse gas protocol for corporations and how, you know, how to properly inventory and account for greenhouse gas emissions is obviously the market is very focused on climate transition and hitting specific climate goals and temperature goals. Munis are missing a protocol that is broadly adopted. In fact, actually we have a current resource, um, the C40, uh, C40 cities um, has put in World Resources Institute and ICLEI has put together uh, a sort of a protocol for community scale greenhouse gas emissions inventories, similar to what exists for the corporate market but it is not broadly adopted. Um, you know, I think most municipal issuers are not really aware of a consistent way to think about inventories, which is, you know, sort of really the starting point for any transition risk analysis. Um, and I think if we if we can figure out a way to 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 broadly inform and adopt these protocols in the municipal market, then you know, issuing climate aligned bonds and you know having really green compelling. Uh, compelling green programs uh, would make a lot more sense. And the market, I think, not only the market, but I think the stakeholders ultimately, not just investors, um, would be, um, I think, would really receive that well. And I think we could really move the market forward in a more sort of consistent step as opposed to this, you know, sort of fragmented approach that we have now. I mean, I think fragmented is a really good term, right? And and I think that's sort of synonymous with municipal credit in general, right? We're spread across 30,000 some issuers, um, you know, thousands upon thousands, you know, individual 
you know, credit structures. So, you know, fragmented is definitely a, a key term here. But, you know, does the sort of the MSRB coming in and wanting to put regulations in place, does that almost run the risk of like over standardization where then every issuer is sort of forced into the same box? I mean, because part of, you know, at least for me, like what makes a market is is really all of these different structures and people sort of, you know, optic lens that they view them in and what sort of value they put on that, right? So if everybody's sort of like looking at things in the same way, you know, one concern that I have or something that makes me slightly skeptical is that it could sort of force some of the alpha out of, you know, the, the sort of ESG area that we're seeing right now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I mean it, yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I think, Eric, you, you raise a good point. The, the challenge is if the MSRB don't do something and don't propose some sort of structure that can be applied to the market, then, well, I mean, someone else will. Um, yeah. In a lot of ways, that's what's happened to date in the first place because a lot of the construct for ESG generally has been driven out of Europe. Um, it's been driven substantially by the corporate side as opposed to by necessarily the public finance side. Um, and as a result, the sort of the muni space is left trying to figure out how to jam its multiple shaped pegs into the square hole yep. that corporate ESG has then created. So you're kind of between a rock and a hard place, wherein if you don't attempt to provide some structure that is broadly applicable to the muni space, um, look, the, the, the policy's coming to get you anyway. So you may as well um, you may as well figure out what is an appropriate approach that can be applied to the critical mass of the muni market in order for it to at least have some sort of shot of being applicable. Um, so I, I, I think that the whole there's kind of a um, we've kind of hit that hit that inflection point where I think something's got to be on the GFOA is doing the same thing where the GFOA is talking about climate. Um, where all the different participants in the space realize they've got to get in front of this or else they're just constantly going to be playing catch up to constructs that aren't necessarily designed for them and are probably not going to be in their best interest. It'll be interesting to see the, the sort of um, the comments that come in from what the MSRB solicited, um, just because there's so many different players or so many different sort of agendas um, that that went out to. Um, and obviously everybody has a different axe in, in this space. So it'd be interesting to see like how they sort of, you know, weighed their way forward um, with so many different competing opinions. And I think it's, you know, having sector specific approaches to wh whether you're doing GHG inventory or assessing transition risk or temperature ratings or wherever. I think sector specific approaches are not new to the market, right? To capital markets. I mean, we have this on the corporate side, um, more and more sector specific methods and methodologies for transitioning are becoming available. Munis have a lot of similar sectors, right? Or have public enterprises that do similar things to what um, the corporate market has already developed methodologies for. So I think we already we don't need to reinvent all the wheels, but I think it is going to be a sector specific approach and it has to um, give room for, you know, the, the variety of issuer profiles that we have in our market, but it's certainly, uh, it's certainly doable and it, it's necessary is the, the more important point. 
And I think the regulator in, in the early days will take the approach as the European regulator did when they initially came out with SFDR and some of the basic principles under SFDR were not so much this is how you should transition. It's more about this is how you need to be transparent about your risks, right? This is how you need to understand. We need to know that you understand these risks and we need to know that you're building governance um, governance structures and practices in place to handle them, mitigate them, and, you know, transition successfully. And I think maybe those would be the initial objectives of the regulators. I can just add on to that a little bit. So to me, in munis, the sector-specific approach is actually you need to go a level down and get into the actual sector of the financed activities because there are best practices and kind of a regulatory regime around each one of those sectors that munis have to act within. So for example, in the water sector, many states, California is a leader among them, require disclosure of uh, greenhouse gas emissions associated with uh, finance activities or uh, regulated activities. So you're going to construct a new wastewater treatment plant, a new drinking water treatment plant, you're going to lay new pipelines. Part of the CEQA, the environmental analysis, is, is greenhouse gas emissions. And there's a mechanism for mi mitigating those. And that's all addressed through the permitting scheme. So some of those things are there but it's very complex. Um, sort of similarly, uh, the, um, even just the public uh, review process for um, municipal activities adds certain amount of transparency, but you have to know where to find it. It's not necessarily transparent to investors, but it's transparent to all if you know where to find it. So part of what we're trying to do in Kestrel is bring that information more into the forefront for investors uh, so that they understand these things have been studied, these things have been addressed. There's this wide range of best practices within like a, within a, a, a new school building, for example. You can build a really energy efficient, transition aligned green building, or you can build a run of the mill building with zero energy efficiency in it. And we see that whole spectrum. Are there people really building like buildings like that anymore? I mean, I'm just, I just. Yes, every day. That's so interesting because, you know, I, I having just sat on a school board and we went through the process of building a new high school. I mean, that was sort of like our main mandate was to make it as energy efficient as possible. So it's, it's completely confounding to me that someone would want like a coal fired boiler. Or, you know what I mean? Like something that just like, it seems so out of date now. It does, but there's uh, there there are vast differences across the country in what school buildings look like. Very interesting. I think just to um, kind of this point about you know coal-fired school buildings. I mean, <laughs> um, you know when Ksenia was talking about um, like greenhouse gas emissions, like I'm picturing an OS where the risk factors would list out, you know, my state contributes X, Y, Z to climate change. Um, that's just kind of like my rudimentary understanding of this. I mean, I'm just curious, like, you know, the muni market is all about public officials, elected officials who each have their own political leanings. Um, it's no secret that climate change has become extremely politicized. I mean, how much of a barrier um, is, is just that, is the fact that 
this is something that's very political and not every issuer um, is going to want to talk about um, global warming in their bond documents. I mean, I could tell you as an investor, um, you know, we think about politics and the extent to which they interfere in the financing decisions and in debt financing of city needs and public enterprise needs. Um, and we really try to control for um, political risk through the governance factors that we evaluate, right? Because to us, uh, you can you can have you can have really contentious politics in their states that do, but they still make really smart decisions about governance, right? And the, and and understanding the risks and mitigating them and managing them in the long term. So we try to really. Um, to really filter for politics through the lens of governance um, at the issuer level. And we've seen issuers, you know, we look across uh, across the spectrum, across all states, we invest nationally, and we've seen issuers in really contentious, in states with really contentious policies on a number of things, still drive, you know, best practices on uh, climate change or, you know, mm. managing climate risks because they have been effective in communicating that to their stakeholders locally that, you know, we don't care what politics says, this is a real risk. We can actually tie data, tie data and evidence and outcomes to climate events or, or you know, uh, natural hazards or a warming climate to the impacts in your community and to your wallet and to your utility bill and so on and so forth. So um, while I think that you know the, the the nature of our politics does present a challenge across states because it's just so inconsistent from state to state, um, I think we really, if we keep leaning on the governance practices that enable successful projects and successful transitions, uh, the issuers will hear the message, and we can drive change through other channels like GFOA, you know, the MSRB, and so on. You know, investors, stakeholders. Um, that can really step around some of the political noise and really deliver us the outcomes that we're looking for as investors. Go ahead, Chris. I, I think, I think, yeah, I think so. I think part of this is there's, there's clearly um, a more political flavor, particularly when we talk about the carbon transition risk side um, you know, across the country. Um, in terms of physical climate risk, we've actually noticed that it's less about politics and more about location at that point. So. Uh, the issuers that are on the coast, uh, you know, they're the, they're the ones that everyone likes to point to and say, hey, look, you've got, you know, everyone thinks climate risk is somehow um, a corollary of, of sea level rise, which is just a fallacy. Um, but so you'll see issuers along the coast, whether they be in relatively conservative areas or relatively liberal areas, are more inclined to talk about physical climate risk um, and disclose in, in various ways. Um, I would say the, the other factor that we see in terms of disclosure quality is actually just the size of the issuer, quite frankly, and the resources that the issuer has. It, it takes time and effort and work in order to provide, get the data first and then to provide disclosure second. Um, and so the smaller the issuer, the less likely you are to see um, meaningful disclosure across all these different factors. And I, I think that's the, the resources and it, it are really the biggest uh, the biggest factor that are driving the capability to adapt, the capability to to disclose, the capability to do anything. And unfortunately, a lot of the municipal market is on the smaller end of town. If you actually go and look at it on a on an issue account basis, you're making the case for the MSRB to standardize the disclosure, right, Chris? I mean, that seems like sort of where you're going with that. 
I think it creates um, a hell of a lot of um, presumably simplicity and consistency yeah. where at least at least everyone will know kind of what the expectations are as opposed to a, you know row a batch in the back and yeah. hope that it's kind of going to resonate with someone. Ksenia, how does that help you in, in your job as a portfolio manager, you know, if there's standardizations in place right now? Because I would assume that you guys have your own internal modeling and you use, you know, external third parties to sort of help fill in the gaps. But I mean, so that's all, all of a sudden the MSRB has these, you know, broad risks, um, rules in place, you know, what changes on your end? Um, that's a good question because it, it depends on what what they set out with in the beginning, right? If they're if their levels of expectations are just, you know, basic disclosure and basic, you know, statement of climate risks, it may just not be enough for what we're looking to do at this stage, right? We may be past that and we may be actually, you know, really leaning on third party data to us to assess physical and transition risk, uh, whether the issuer made any disclosure about it or not. And if mm -hmm. they didn't, it will probably work against them and in our assessment of you know transition risk or impact and so on so uh, you know baseline expectation for us or baseline disclosure yes would be really helpful because then then at least all issuers will know it's expected of them i think we're still you know wading through the waters of in, informing and, and educating and so on but if the msre came out with basic disclosure expectations then everybody would would consider to have been informed which is great but I think for the level of analysis we're doing now on municipals, but also broadly in the fixed income space and, and generally in capital markets and equities as well, I think we're well, you know, we're well ahead of what the issuer understands about their risk. And we're already, you know, starting to learn a lot about the issuer from third parties, our own insight, our own research and our own modeling capabilities. Yes. So, and I think the larger issuer, as Chris mentioned, is aware of this. Like they're aware that the investor is doing a lot of work and they're going to come up with risks that the issuer is not aware of, or if it's not aware of and didn't disclose, it doesn't matter because we'll, we'll get to it ourselves. And um, I think that the bigger issuers have certainly picked up on that trend and are trying to get ahead of the investor as much as they can. And, you know, at least communicate and signal the fact that like, yes, we understand that these risks are present. This is what we can do about it at this time. And this is the financing program that we've designed to help us get there. Chris, I'm wondering if you could also kind of jump in here, just, you know, um, Ksenia is talking about how how she uses her, her risk analysis. What are you hearing from, um, you know, the money managers that you're working with in terms of how, how they're making buy and sell decisions based off risk data? Um, and, you know, especially given the the uh, transition to working with ICE, um, you know, what, what have you been hearing in terms of like how this data is um, actionable? Yeah, so I think we've we've had to take a, a, a lot of our clients on a journey uh, because the available the data was new to them, which means they had to try to kind of figure it out how to put in their workflow, right? Um, but we're at a point now where a number of clients are looking at the, the climate risk information um, and taking that to the issuers and asking, okay, you, you've got a, a certain amount of climate risk here. Um, what are you doing about it? You know, we don't see it disclosed. Um, do you have any climate action plans? Is there any discussion in that? So, so a lot of it is um, using it as inputs to drive a dialogue with the issuers, and but then also taking 
um, the frameworks providing on the climate risk side and using that as a screening mechanism wherein above a certain threshold of risk, it triggers a dialogue at an investment committee, or at least you know, requires some extra level of discussion before going down the path of pursuing that bond. Um, on the social impact side, it's um, very different again, where um, we've got some clients that look very closely at the housing affordability metrics that we provide. Others are using more affluence and poverty. Um, and it really depends on a, on a sector by sector basis again. There, it's much more of a positive screen, trying to identify issuers that are serving historically disadvantaged populations through whatever constructs that they want to look at, but then their clients are asking them to look at as well. That's less of a, of a negative screen and a thresholding and much more of a, we're going to try and find where to place our dollars for maximum social impact across the different constructs. I think it's, a, it's such early days at this point that so many of our clients are on that journey as opposed to at the destination. And I'm not even sure there's actually a final destination for this as opposed to a continuation and an optimization of what they're doing and, and the workflows that they use. I'll shut I mean, up because there's just so much going on. Yeah. It's really complex. I mean, you mentioned that most of the climate issues, right? And I do want to delineate climate from the larger ESG conversation are happening like on the coast, but like, is anybody really concerned about climate issues in Philadelphia, like, you know, where I'm from? I mean, should that be a yeah. concern? Um, and what, what should the yeah. concerns be? Uh, well, we could go issue by issue if you want. Um, um, Philadelphia actually has some um, coastal exposure. Coastal exposure, if you think about the, uh, the nature of waterways and um, bays that Philadelphia connects to. So we can actually show you a tremendous amount, well, not a tremendous amount, we can show you um, selected areas um, across the greater Philadelphia region uh, where there is flood risk, um, where there is, and that flood risk is going to get more extreme with climate change, um, unless there are climate adaptation, climate resilience um, programs put into place. So I don't think it's, um, you know, sort of, no one's immune to this. I think everyone's got to yeah. figure out Okay, what's, what are our risks? Yeah. Um, and more often than not, in inland locations is where the underbelly of true climate risk actually exists. Um, or in wherever there's a river, um, <laughs> you should take a pretty close look at what the flood risk is. Let me, yeah. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah, Monica, I want to ask your opinion too, since we're talking about client perspectives um, and sort of like how what sort of feedback you've been getting. Um, you know, when it comes to independent verifiers, I mean, how have you seen interest in that product grow over the last several years? And what are you hearing from clients as far as, you know, the most, you know, consistent feedback? Oh, thanks. That's a great question. So uh, we here, we're about to do our 100th second party opinion. I've been saying this for a few weeks now, but uh, it could happen any day. Maybe it'll be today. We'll do the 100th. <laughs> Well, congratulations. Uh, we're pretty, we're, thank you. We're pretty close. And uh, we've debriefed on every single one of those jobs. And uh, about 90% of the issuers, so about 90-ish, 90 of those 100, have all reported either new investors to the credit, new, new ESG investors, um, tightening uh, of the on the pricing. We have had four in the last... So from December of 2020 to December of 
uh, we've had four uh, pricing premiums, so four muni bonds that had a green and a vanilla issued the same day and had very clear anywhere from two to five basis points from pricing benefit. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I, I agree earlier, someone said like we should move away from that. And I totally agree that we should move, move away from that. But um, we've seen, you know, a lot of green bonds and social bonds are, are in demand. Another thing that we've noticed lately is that when we debrief with the teams, they say, Normally, the investors have a lot of questions, but they didn't have a lot of a lot of questions. Like we, they didn't have a lot of technical questions um, about this, and and that was attributed to the the extra disclosure in the second party opinion. Yeah. And, and Monica, have you ever had to um, turn down an issuer that's sought an opinion from you? Oh, sure, we do all the time. And, uh, and we coach we coach issuers for more impact. So I'll give you a couple of um, quick examples. So like why we turn down issuers, one of the screens that we use um, within Kestrel, so folks come to us and they say, we're interested in having our green or social second party opinion on, on this bond. So we look first to see if it's technically eligible. Um, and then the next thing we look at is the do no harm. <laughs> gate. So sometimes we get, we have activities that are, um, they're, they're technically green, but, or, or eligible projects, but the larger act, uh, operation might have impacts. A quick example of that might be like an anaerobic digester on a large uh, confined animal operation. So the digester is technically eligible as a green project. It makes uh, you know biogas, um, but there are water quality or air quality or environmental justice issues associated with the larger activity. So that's an example of when we might say no. We've said no to some social bonds, quite a few, not quite a few, several social bonds, um, uh, just because we're, we can see there's a social benefit of the bond finance activity, but at whose expense? So there were some some questions there. Um, so yeah, and then in terms of impact, we've also turned uh, issuers down for not enough impact. And uh, we're really happy that um, a couple of them have actually increased the impact and come back and then we were able to offer the second party opinion. So for example, um, uh, higher education, uh, originally was not going to build to um, a higher in, um, energy efficient standard, and they weren't committing to that. And when we turned them down, they upped their standard and made the commitment to get the buildings certified. Ksenia, I want to go to you with this question, and, and you know, it's something that Amanda and I have had a big debate about before, and it's this whole sort of greenwashing issue and and i know it's like sort of like a really really dirty term when it comes to you know the, the world that the three of you sort of are living in but it, it does happen right and there's a lot of probably money managers who don't have adherence set of rules set up that are saying that they're running you know esg type strategies and they're sort of making things sort of fit in pegs and holes that really shouldn't be going together but you know where do you see the most glaring issues of that happening with muni deals like what sort of sectors well, that's a good question. 
<laughs> because I think it goes to the point of inconsistency across the muni market, right? Because you can okay. have, yeah, so you can have um, certain type of structures that we see as not very compelling from a financing and, and green uh, project categories point of view, as well as sectors. So I think there's just a, a lot of poorly formed plans all over the place. And I think, yeah. you know, greenwashing, it does have this negative connotation of like, you know, we wanted to push this project through, even though it's not very green, but let's just see if we can squeeze a few bips out of this. I don't think it's really, you know, I, I don't see that in the muni market. I don't see intentional greenwashing to where, you know, an issuer is really trying to uh, pull one over the investor as they're, you know, bringing a greenwash deal to the market. I think it really stems from this, you know, general misunderstanding of what we're trying to achieve, right, in bringing green deals and bringing social deals and bringing climate transition bonds is that, you know, if you can't tell a long-term story with your project that fits into like a really thoughtful um, framework about climate transition and climate action plan, and you can, and you can clearly um, associate the project in question with your broader climate action goals and steps that you're going to take over long term, then to me, it's not a compelling project. And, and yes, in some cases, it's even greenwashing because we're not investing in this one deal. We're not investing in this one series. We're investing in you as an issuer who has a really good idea about their risks and a really good plan to mitigate them. So that's kind of how we think about it. We tell issuers that you know, just bringing one green building deal in, in a, with no plan in place and, and no overarching idea about how are you going to manage climate risk in the 30, 40, 50 years that are going to continue to be in business yeah. as an issuer is, is what we find uncompelling. So, and that's, you know, obviously a big red flag for greenwashing is that you've never done this before. You bring in this one deal because the timing is right and you heard about the green trend and you have no climate action plan in place. And um, I think that's where we see really what underpins this greenwashing trend a lot. And that's what we try to obviously engage issuers on consistently about, you know, think about broader governance goals. So does it raise an immediate red flag when you see like sort of an issue you, you've never seen before come to market with something? I mean, are you oh, yeah. approaching it skeptically? And then, and then you, you know, you, you do basic Google search on the issue and the word sustainability or climate action or climate risk or something like that. And nothing comes up and there's no public disclosure or any disclosure anywhere in the US or anywhere in the issuer's materials about how they think about this in the long term. That's definitely a big red flag. And that's, you know, something we tend to stay away from. Yeah, that's a red flag for us too in verifying bonds. If there's no, uh, if there's no larger commitment to sustainability, that's another kind of reason that we might say no to a project or ask for something more verification project. Yeah, again, it comes back, it comes back to something I said before about, about issue size. So you might look at, uh, you might look at a school district that has no specific climate action plan, but they're in a county that does. Um, and so, you know, one of the, I think one of the things that would benefit a lot of issuers is maybe not, not necessarily being, having their own action plan, but having some awareness or even there being some sort of taxonomy as to the state has a climate action plan. That state action plan um, corresponds to this county in this way. The county has an action plan of its own. 
And so if you think about this from a parent, sort of a, a parent-child perspective or a taxonomy perspective, it would then be possible for a given hospital or a given charter school or a given school district or anyone else to not necessarily have to do the running of the action plans themselves, but at least to be able to have a dialogue or um, reference up to a plan that applies to them. Right now, it's the wild, wild west out there where there's nowhere for a smaller issuer to go or to look to in order to quickly get a reference point for an action plan that might exist. It might actually be material to um, the local resiliency of, you know, over the, the coming years and the coming decades. So that's another area where there's a, this really fragmented market wherein I think the state level and the county levels especially could be a friend to the smaller issuers if they just made their, their information a little more organized and a little more accessible. I want to kind of ask kind of a January New Year's resolution-esque question um, for each of you. Um, you know, what are you excited um, for the space this year? What are What's kind of your, your hope that the space sees um, in 2022? Well, I'll go first. I am really excited about moving the conversation uh, to transition alignment and really talking more about transition risk you know, Eric, you said, should folks in Philadelphia care about climate risk? Well, even if the flooding isn't a major issue for Philadelphia, which we'll leave to Chris to parse out, everyone has to be concerned about transition risk. Because as we said at the beginning, what's happened in the past is not an indicator of what's going to happen in the future. We have less than 10 years now to address climate change and reduce our emissions. Everyone, even people in Philadelphia, everyone has to be moving us toward the just transition. And I'm really excited about the efficiency that capital markets could bring to this because here's where the, the rubber hits the road. Investors can help drive this change that needs to happen. So I'm really excited about transition alignment and talking about transition alignment in 2022. As an, an investor similarly excited about transition risk assessment, I will keep plugging my dream for a really consistent, scalable, and broadly adopted um, GHG inventory and accounting uh, standard and protocol for state and local governments and public enterprises. And I think that underpins any ability to do transition risk assessment. Um, and I hope that we are able to pull, uh, to, you know, to deliver it this year, if not, you know, shortly thereafter. Yeah, and for, for my part, um, I think this is a year where um, various stakeholders all start to get some sort of alignment and some sort of consistency about the way they want to do things, whether it be the buy side, the sell side, the issuer community, the bond insuring community, the ratings agency. Um, I think we're at a point now where everyone is craving for some sort of consistency, and I think this is a year when uh, I think a lot of that dialogue could really get started on that. And, you know, lastly, what would you guys say to the skeptics? Because it doesn't matter, right? Even if someone listens to this podcast, there's still going to be people who are like, I'm just not sold yet. So what would be your takeaway message? And you can sort of just reverse order. Chris, starting with you. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll throw a Gretzky at a map. Gretzky is a map, right? Um, you, this is one where you've got you've to gotta skate to where the puck's going to be. Um, 
I don't even think there's any question about climate change being a thing now. I mean, I think you still find corners of population where, you know, attribution of climate change is still, you know, something they've got to be convinced about. Um, but if this is a thing and if the social impacts of climate are a thing and if broader sort of social constructs and the need to support broader populations are a thing, um, I, I think it's, look, just like everything, um, there's, there's an S curve of adoption. Um, and S-curves by their nature have late adopters and those late adopters will often be disadvantaged by the lateness of their adoption. I think we're just on a journey. We've got to understand that the S-curve is going to continue its journey. Um, I think I would ask the question of, can this person really articulate what they're not sold on okay. uh, about this? Because there's so many different things, right? I mean, social governance, environmental, that we can talk about. Um, and I would also say that, you know, like, you know, Chris, Chris mentioned, everybody gets there on their own pace. And yes, we're all on a journey, but you have to accept the fact that being a late adopter and being, you know, sort of late to understanding how these risks align and impact credit and performance is going to have consequences. So you can be a late adopter, you know, of anything, but know that you might pay a price for um, for catching up later to trends that are really moving the market now. I would Monica. tell naysayers to read the Commodities Futures Trading Commission's lovely report on systemic risk to the markets posed by climate change. And remember that the Commodities Futures Trading Commission was the early bell ringer for the risk to the market from the housing crisis. And I think that this issue of systemic risk to capital markets will start waking people up at night when you really look and learn about the implications of climate change to everything to agriculture, to economies, to where people live, to how people live. It's major disruption of major systems. And it's, it's, it's major disruption of ecosystems. And we depend on ecosystems for our life. <laughs> so I would say, go read the Commodities Futures Trading Commission's excellent white paper on the risk of climate change to financial systems. I hope that you're going to send me a link of that, Monica. I will. Oh, perfect. All right. And with that, I want to thank everyone for being here today. I, I think it's been an enlightening conversation, to say the least. Um, and I want to thank you know Monica Reed, Chris Harshorn, Ksenia Coban, and Amanda Albright for, for helping out moderating this today. And please um, join us for our next episode. Uh, Mid-February, we're going to talk about um, separately managed accounts and how they're changing the landscape of municipal bonds. And with that, thanks everyone.